Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Changing Reels, the podcast that aims to change the conversation about diversity in front of and behind the camera, one reel at a time. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And for those of you joining us for the first time, what we like to do with each episode of Changing Reels is pick a movie that we feel is overlooked or underappreciated, focusing on diversity, either in terms of the stars, the directors, the screenwriters, what have you, and then two short films, which may tie into the future film, may not. Short films, aside from a quick glance at the Oscars or obscure festivals don't quite get the same love as feature films and it never hurts to get a 7 to 15 minute chunk of culture in in addition to our feature film so courtney how you hanging in today Uh, i'm doing well it's been uh, a busy week but it's been good i was recently on the forgotten film casts which is a podcast hosted by todd liebenau and I was on there talking about Carl Franklin's One False Move, so that was good to revisit that film, because it had been a while since I'd seen it, but I I really enjoyed that one. I don't think that episode's been posted yet, but when it does, we'll add the link to the show notes. And today, I was at the second TIFF press conference. They usually have two. The first one's like the kind of the big name star titles, and then they have a second one for the Canadian films, both feature films and shorts. And they have a few like the directors there and just a whole slew of people. So and it was my first time attending one of those. So that was actually a lot of fun. And I got to meet a couple of short film makers. They have a film called Latch that's playing, and it was uh, Justin Harden and Rob Brunner. When I was talking to them, they said that they had another short film that premiered at South by Southwest as well earlier this year, so they're really kind of riding a high this year, and um, I was checking to see if they had any online so that our viewers could get a sample, but they said that they don't have any other stuff online yet. Some things, I guess, were on DVD and other avenues, but I have their information, and definitely if any other stuff comes online, we'll keep you guys posted. I'm going to have to try and double down on my indie short film cred if you're going to become the big mover and shaker of the two of us. The funny thing is, is I'm so not a mover and or a shaker. <laughs> I'm usually the uh, the one that's just kind of like, if I'm at those events, just on the side of the wall, hanging out, might chat to one or two people, but I'm going to be co-hosting Frameline's coverage. I know I've talked about Frameline a few times on the show, a, a local radio program. My co-host, Barbara Goligoski, she's a TIFF veteran when it comes to like the press side of things. So it was more her just introducing me to various people through there, and that's how conversations started. So hopefully... By the end of this journey, I might be slightly better at the networking thing. For a comparative point in terms of our general networking skills, my networking skills has uh, eventually blossomed into the partnership with you and uh, you. Hey, you know what? you got to start somewhere. <laughs> Indeed. I don't really have much going on my end of things. Been uh, trying to bust my hump a bit, updating Can't Stop the Movies a bit more. The only thing that I really have of note, and it's more of a curiosity than anything else, is I finally got to watch the Fifty Shades of Grey sequel, Fifty Shades Darker. I thought the first one was half hilarious and half boring melodrama, and this time it's basically wall-to-wall hilarity. And the one thing that I took from that, that I want to broadcast now, and as I mentioned in my review, and if you know me on social media, is that there are no less than four different sex scenes where Christian Grey keeps his pants on. Which, for a movie about kinky, very tame, darkish desires, one time you could see it as a mistake, four times is a creative choice. 
So I found it extremely funny that Christian Grey's penis must be made of some kind of titanium, or he's got the best fabric softener in the world to have that much sex without taking his pants off. Well, you know, I have not seen any of the Fifty Shade films, but you now have me intrigued by this new trend that they're trying to start. At the way things are going and considering how tame the kinkiness is, it's like light slapping and some toys and that's about it. I'm pretty sure the third movie is just going to be the two of them kind of groping each other clothed in burlap sacks. A man can dream. My dreams are a little less tame, but considering how hilarious the second movie was, I'm going to hope for something that absurd in the third. Well, it's kind of interesting, though, because for a series that, or at least for the novels that are so popular and some were citing as possibly restarting the sexual revolution and whatnot, from what I've heard, the films are surprisingly tame, and I wonder if that's just because you're dealing with, like, big studios making it, opposed to back in, like, what was the 80s and early oh I guess it was the 80s when you had like films like Nine and a Half Weeks and Wild Orchid which were steamy quasi B movies it sounds like this is far tamer even when you would expect it to be something along those lines or anything Bertolucci was doing I guess on in through like The Dreamers and mm-hmm. then the unbearable lightness of being I know Philip Kaufman had a a, a brief erotica spiel and yeah sexiness has uh, gone out of movies the, the sexiest thing or the closest thing that could be a vague facsimile of sexy in Fifty Shades Darker is a pool game where they both rub the cues suggestively, and that's about it. There's a lot of close-ups of them giving each other knowing glances as they hold their sticks. So we're a far cry from Kim Basinger and Mickey Rourke uh, ripping each other's clothes off in a rain-soaked alleyway. Whether that's for the better or the worse, listener, feel free to weigh in. Leaving aside the uh, tame sexual revolution of Fifty Shades, we're going to move on with the bulk of our programming here today. So, Courtney, first short film, what do you got? This one is a short film that I've always loved. came out in 2012, and I think the first time I saw it was a quarterly short program up here called Shorts That Are Not Pants. And this screened there, and it's a Canadian film by Jonathan Ng, and it's called Requiem for Romance. It's a beautiful animated short about a couple essentially breaking up. It's really a conversation this couple is having over the phone. But instead of just animating people holding phones, he was inspired by 1950s Shanghai water ink animation, a bit of a love for kung fu films as well. So he makes this glorious visual feast of these two rival warriors crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon style, flying off from rooftops and riding horses and battling each other as you're listening to this couple essentially walk through the steps of breaking up. And we were talking about romance When you think of romance, you think of happiness and joy, but I find this film deeply romantic, even though it is about a couple breaking up. I know that sounds very odd, but it's just the way how this film is constructed. I think it's just a beautiful film. Well, I think you're onto something there, because this actually reminded me a lot less of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and more of Zhang Yimou's hero, especially in the way the emotional palette of the conversation as everything ebbs and flows between the two of them and slight revelations come out, the way that ends up playing out entirely on screen. 
Because you did have that gorgeous, silky, watery stork kind of blending into the brilliant blue background as the fight starts between the two warriors as the breakup starts on the soundtrack and it's entirely defensive as soon as the woman of the two says that you know there's someone else the male fighter is enraged like it immediately bursts into flame and he draws a sword and now it's more of a struggle but my favorite shift there the two are coming to if not like a happy conclusion, then at least they're becoming slowly more understanding of one another's situation. It becomes green. If it was something where the two of them were together, then I would have expected red and blue to merge. Because purple is, is a deeply romantic color. You've talked about that with Pariah, among other movies. But the fact that it shifted to green, I was already mentally prepared. Like, this isn't actually a mixing of the two. They're coming to some kind of neutral ground that has part of blue, not red, so that he's more going over into her territory instead of her making peace with his. And I I hear you on how it's romantic, even if it's kind of sad. I like that there is still some kind of hope at the end that their connection will continue and potentially pick up steam again one day, even if the conversation as it is doesn't end as either of them really want it to. And I like that the bulk of the conversation, as you get through, you realize that the divide is not necessarily something that's wrong with their relationship together. Them connected together worked well. It's the external forces. It's the the culture, the tradition. It's essentially her parents not approving of their daughter, who is an artist, being in a relationship with a fellow artist. They associate the artistry with poverty. They try and set her up with a doctor and so that whole notion of maybe someday they might come back together because they seem to fit well although she's now drifted onto this new guy but i like that it wasn't he cheated it was the parents influence and the weight of tradition that was slowly bending this relationship to the point that it was breaking and that ties back into the Tales of Mere Existence series we talked about last week, about how there are all these cultural implications for immigrants or children of immigrants also. It wasn't directly said, but with all of the conversation tying around, you know, making sure that one of the two in a relationship is respectable, what that means in the eyes of uh, her parents, and the blending of the English, basically, you know, they're both speaking English, but them still kind of talking around those traditions, talking around their limitations, and then it taking place in that beautiful watercolor mutual duel. It's not much of a fight. It's, it is it, it is more of a, a duel as they are trying to kind of feel each other out with their limits. I like how it touched on that without necessarily being explicit about it, not just saying outright, this is a story of immigrants. It takes a much more, not as shattered as diasporic movies, but it very much has that conglomeration of influences and styles that you see when diaspora form of different people from other countries trying to connect with each other so there's a lot going on with this i they i actually didn't really realize i was gonna have this much to say until we started (laughs) talking but it is sad but it, it, it there's something resilient about it that really resonates with me 
I've seen this so many times now, and it's one that I always come back to, and I've posted on my own blog talking about it. I know it's won a whole bunch of awards, and I'm just happy to share this film with people. I was fortunate enough to get a chance to see it on the big screen, so that even enhanced the colors and stuff more. But for those at home who are listening to this and pop onto the Monster Superior site to watch it where we'll have it linked, you know, you'll still get the full impact of it. You'll still be immersed in it, even if you're watching it from a, a computer screen or a monitor. Yeah, just maximize, dim the lights, put on some headphones, and enjoy the time. So let's get to your short, because I vaguely remember seeing this one before, but I'm very interested to hear why you chose it. When we're talking about romance, and in the case of your short, Requiem for Romance, it's very much a romantics idea of romance. You know, two people that want to be together and have connected but can't. And this is a romance of a really weirdly different stripe. It's called Piano, directed by Kaspar Jansis, and it's a bunch of interconnecting stories. It's something that you would have like with a Robert Altman-esque multiple lines connecting at once, or now I guess P.T. Anderson with a bunch of different characters whose lives crisscross and sometimes directly interact and sometimes not. But it's all these people who are going through their own little struggles because of some idealized notion they have about something else. The centerpiece is a woman who is desperately trying to get a piano down this hill. I like that her struggle, like, Whatever she is getting in terms of pleasure from pushing this thing, it isn't immediately apparent, so that seems to be the most frustrating aspect, and probably the most obscure one. But more directly, there's a guy who's driving a truck, and he sees her. He keeps imagining her seductively rubbing up against or moaning around the piano like she's performing some kind of dance of seduction with it. I like that the images that everyone has of each other they're misplaced they're misguided she's genuinely struggling to get this piano down while he's imagining her having this seductive power over him and you see that also with the uh, bow-tied landlord if anything he is some kind of super of this apartment building and an older lady and they have some kind of odd working relationship with each other like she intentionally clogs one of her drains to summon him down and the two of them seem to be going through these motions that are part lie but also kind of part what they want from each other and i like this idea of all of these people going for what they think they want or what they think they're seeing in the moment and then getting rebuffed but so many lines converging to kind of see the absurdity of everyone expecting something from people that they aren't, that they aren't capable of actually giving. I think absurdity is a, is a great word for it because I found this short funny, but the absurd nature of it is what really hooks you. With the driver, I don't know if it was really misguided or imagination. I Because the way I took it is the minute he sees her, he's attracted to her. But the various ways that she's pushing and leaning up against it, I didn't take it as his imagination. I took it as she was just in those positions. And by her being in those positions, he was getting excited. For me, this film is very much about people who are afraid to take that next step, kind of put themselves out there. Because you have the old woman and the landlord, and she clogs this thing, he comes fix it, and she gives him a Lolita cookie. <laughs> yeah, and that was an <laughs> odd detail. Well, she was watching like a, it looked like a kind of 
Cary Grant-esque romance in the background anyway, but she gave him the Lolita cookie and you realize that he's got like a stack of them at his apartment. So she clearly wants him. He's clearly interested in her, but he doesn't get the nerve up until it's too late. Even with the driver, the driver is really attracted to this woman lugging a piano and he comes close at one point to help her and quickly runs away. Like There's a lot of those moments of wanting to take that leap of faith, if you will, but not doing it. And we see it again with, I think, the third story with the parachuting cop and the woman who's like the type rope walker. Both of those are very hesitant about taking the leap. The type rope walker does take the step, whereas the other guy, I can't remember if he jumps out or not. But it's th- that hesitation I found was like a recurring theme through all of those stories. Yeah, and it's kind of funny that of the tightrope walker and then the cop, uh, he ultimately doesn't. The helicopter is descending right when he thinks he's going to, and then when they get back to the office, everyone has their smiling photos with each other. And I'd be kind of curious to try and map out a timeline of this. If they were going to do that skydiving and then they get back to the precinct, while the woman is pushing the piano and the clog is going on and everything like that. The tightrope walker girl is in those photos of the skydivers. So either she was up there a really long time or they are like the most efficient parachute packers in all of policedom. I caught that as well. I was I was wondering whether she was just there for hours or if that was the, we need to get the story moving, so we're just going to put this little detail in that they're back in the office and hopefully the audience won't notice. I liked it, though. It'd be one of those things that trying to parse it together logically is missing the point. You had the police officer who was unable to jump, and in the background, he's both being taunted by his co-workers in a way, or at least he thinks he's being taunted. And then there's the additional reminder of the girl who is willing to take that leap, even if it results in her crashing into the piano. And uh, the movie in the background that's playing when the bow-tied old landlord and the old lady, um, it's Gone with the Wind, And that's why I was thinking that the woman pushing the piano, it was more from the man's perspective, like his imagination running wild, because that scene that they're talking about in Gone with the Wind, or the scene that is being presented, you know, it's all about Clark Gable's character telling Vivian Leigh's character that she needs a good kissing, and she needs to be kissed well and often. And, you know, it's one of those code censorship things. The thing that's on everyone's mind is some kind of sex or some kind of proof that they can take control of their surroundings. So that was Clark Gable projecting himself a bit, but correctly. So when you see the truck driver, you know, every time that the woman pushing the piano is moaning suggestively, it almost seems like he's imagining her as enticing him, much like Clark Gable, in this case, correctly pegged Vivian Leigh and Gone with the Wind. I can see that. When I was watching this film at first, my first instinct was, oh, I have seen this before. And I was trying to think back to where. But the more I started watching, I was like, how does this fit into romance? But as we're talking <laughs> about it now, I'm like, oh, you know what? That does make sense. Because all the stuff that we were saying, like, yeah, how did I not put that together? This does fit in. Well, I think it's just because I got so caught up in the Robert Altman shortcut style, but with like a good dash of absurdist humor that it was just throwing me for a loop in terms of how it was connecting to this week's theme. But I do see it now. Something that we haven't touched back on too much, but we do from time to time, because we had discussed way back in our first episode about short films and what movies that they might work well in front of or as a primer toward. I think Piano would be a great short 
to introduce or lead into something like the Triplets of Bevel, something that is a little heavier and a little darker, but no less absurd, so that you could start on that light romantic thing before you get to the poor bicycle guy getting a meat tenderizer used on his leg. I don't know what you would pair with your short, but I think I would pair Triplets of Bevel with mine. That's an interesting one. I, I was trying to think of where that would pair. I think my short works well with the feature that we're discussing simply because of the type of communication that's being employed. It's not the direct face-to-face communication. I guess my short could be applied to a couple of other ones as well, but I'd have to give that some thought. Well, I like that as a transition point because we do have a feature film to talk about. It's the 2013 Indian flick, The Lunchbox, uh, directed by Ritesh Batra. So we're going to take a moment to change some reels, and we will be back with a lunchbox. Welcome back, everyone. We are going to be plowing on ahead with the feature film of the day, the beautifully low-key The Lunchbox. It's a 2013 Indian movie basically taking place entirely within letters and the little interactions we have with people just outside of view that make our lives a bit more bearable. It's directed by Ritesh Batra, stars Irfan Khan, Nimrat Kaur, and Nawazuddin Siddiqui. There are a lot of easy cinematic parallels with The Lunchbox. I was thinking everything from Billy Wilder's The Apartment to Mostly Martha to Ikaru in Spots to Sleepless in Seattle. But really, when I'm making those comparisons, what I want to come down to is that this is a beautifully relatable, near-universal story of missed connections and lonely people finding a space for each other, even if it's just in words. So, Courtney, I loved this, if that's not clear enough already and why'd you pick it i will admit this was actually a first time watch for me it's a film that kind of been on my radar for a while and i just procrastinated on it when we were talking about doing films with like a romantic angle i thought you know what better time to sit down and finally watch this film and over the i guess the last couple of years i've become a, a big fan of irvan khan and I saw a film at TIFF, I want to say maybe two years ago, called Guilty, which was like a police procedural, I believe was based on true events. And I had some issues with the film. I wasn't completely on board with it, but he was really good in it. And he's just one of those actors that, whether he's appearing in something like Slumdog Millionaire or I think he was in Darjeeling Limited, a lot of our listeners might know him from Jurassic World. Whenever he shows up on screen, I'm just happy because he's, he's one of those great character actors and i felt you know i really need to to dive into more indian cinema and he's a great jumping off point for me and what i liked about this film is the fact that it is all done the communication is completely through letters and the premise is got that perfect romantic comedy setup of this lunch delivery system which is an elaborate system somehow never makes any mistakes and the one time it does this housewife gets her husband's lunch meal sent to Khan's character, Sajan, and through there, there's a bit of a playful back-and-forth interaction, but their relationship really does develop, and you get the sense that even though he's older than she is, they might 
possibly have a future together. But due to, I guess, the the way how their relationships even started, you also realize that they might be well suited for each other, but in the real world, it might not work. So there was a lot to chew on. And I like that this film, as entertaining as it is, also touched on themes of cultural racism, class structure, and there was just a lot going on in it for a seemingly simple romantic comedy. The perfect lunch delivery system is funny because when I was reading about this, one of the controversies was that the system that does take place in Mumbai took some offense that a movie could be based on a mistake. It made me want to look into that more. Well, one of the things that I discovered, because I also, too, was reading upon this system, and it actually sounds like they are ridiculously accurate. I, I forget the exact stat, but I think it's like one mistake for every 3,000 deliveries or several months. Like The amount of errors is almost non-existent to the point that people from Harvard came down, which they reference in the film. Several English companies and I think even a few American companies have gone down to try and figure out how they could uh, incorporate such efficiency into their various industries. So I can see them taking pride. If anything, I would be honored that they tried to make a film based off of this. But yeah, I guess if you're doing phenomenal work, you don't want anyone giving you any sort of bad press. And you know, that actually ties directly into one of the interesting subplots in The Lunchbox. And this one's the one that made me think most of Ikaru with Sajan, who's played by Irfan Khan, awash in a sea of paperwork and claims at the office that he works at. And how he, much like the, the system for food delivery, has been able to work more or less perfectly in the 35 years he's been at this company as his boss, Mr. Shroff, states. And the relationship that builds between Sajan and his apprentice, basically, Shaika, it didn't develop like I was expecting. I'm so trained when we see these movies that have any kind of corporate or business-like environment that the young upstart is the person who is kind of manipulative or is going to take steps to make sure the old guy gets out of the way. And there's a good bit of maturity in the way that both Sajan and, and Shaika approach their blossoming kind of friendship, kind of not, as Shaika is getting ready to take over the job from Sajan. And it's just those low-key little moments like Shaika finally getting tired of the way that Sajan is blowing him off and explaining, you know, I was an orphan. I don't need this from you. And it's one of those tiny details that isn't overblown. Like, there's not a huge speech about it. He's just angry explaining where he came from and what this job means to him, even if Shaika isn't taking it as seriously as maybe Sajan would like. And it ends in that wonderful shot after they've you know finally kind of come to terms with each other and Sajan has stuck up for Shaika to make sure Shaika isn't fired. <laughs> and he ends up being the most awkward best man at Shaika's wedding. I loved that shot when they're all getting together for the big family portrait at the end. And there's Sajan in his normal 
suit next to all of these colorful dresses as you hear these off-screen the off-screen voices in this they're so good they hear the off-screen photographer explaining how everyone needs to get in for the photo and it pans over to the right ever so slightly to see like 15 more people trying to cram into the shot it's one of those tiny cultural details that shows just how dense and compact a city like mumbai is how sajan is kind of sticking out like a sore thumb, but also the warmth of Shaika getting Sajan to join in on this festivity after they've built this trust. It all builds so low-key and so lovingly without any huge melodramatic flourishes. I like that when we're first introduced to the Shaika the Replacement, he's treated very much like the comic relief. Sajan pretty much treats him like dirt. You see Sajan at his, I think, lowest in terms of being cordial with him because he does not want this. He doesn't want to train this guy. He doesn't want this guy to do his job because he doesn't want to be replaced, even though he's essentially retiring at the end of the month. But I like that by the end of the film, they're equals. Shaika is the one who becomes that listening board to him and who starts to open his eyes at the possibility of romance, you know, and especially romance with Ilya, who he hasn't even met. But there's that great moment where he's having dinner with Shaika and he does a traditional, so when did you guys get married? And you find out, well, her parents don't approve of me because I'm an orphan. And you realize, man, this guy's had it really tough. And yet he is still optimistic about life. He still finds a way to move on. And when we're introduced to Sejan at the beginning of the film, he's very much lost the zest for life. He's just going through the motion, like the delivery people. You're just doing the day-to-day and something we can all relate to. Go to work, you do what you have to do, you come home. You go to work, do what you have to do, come home. But through the soon-to-be guy that's replacing him and this mysterious woman, like he really starts to open his eyes to the world. And I think he also starts to realize his own mortality and how much of life we let pass by. I thought that was also a very interesting facet to this film. In one of the other surprising twists, building on the, you know, your connections don't come quite as you expect, I love that the letter romance between Sajan and Illa it forms almost out of spite when Sajan gets the lunchbox that was intended for Illa's husband the first time, and he sends back that note. I, b- I believe it was like the food was too salty, and <laughs> you got a free lunch, or at least as far as this delivery system is concerned, you you were delivered someone else's food. Someone else put in the labor to make this lunch, and your response to it is not a thank you, but it's too salty. It's almost like she's spite testing him to see what exactly of hers he will eat because her husband isn't appreciating any of that. It's one of those things where she's craving any kind of feedback, even if it's negative. The fact that it's built on spite, it's kind of a funny romantic comedy trope of that, oh, I hate him, but eventually I'll love him and stuff like that. But it comes from this sensitive place of just needing to be acknowledged in some way. That, I think, is kind of the fundamental difference between Sajan and Illa, is that Sajan, he's not really wanting to be acknowledged anymore. You know, his his wife is gone, he's retiring, he's in this corporate job that he doesn't want to train anyone for. Whereas Illa is stuck in this apartment 
raising her daughter and cooking food for an unappreciative husband. I like that it's an emotional connection that builds out of some small necessity that the two have. And even though it's not entirely positive, it rings true. We need to be acknowledged from time to time that what you're doing matters. And I really dug that about the lunchbox. With that connection and acknowledgement, one of the things I like in terms of how they set it up is that food is essentially the vessel that connects them. He was going to whatever delivery service at the beginning, and when he has that really great meal, when he accidentally eats Illa's food, he goes back to the same place, and they're like, oh, you like the cauliflower dish that we made? We're going to give you cauliflower all the time, right? And that's exactly what he's trying to get away from. He, he doesn't want the same old rut. And it's funny that the husband ends up being the one that gets the cauliflower dish through the rest of this movie. But one of the things I loved about how they use food as that vessel to connect is that Sejan at least has the co-worker to kind of be that voice of reason, you know, bounce ideas off of. For Illa, she has the mysterious auntie who lives upstairs. And I love the, the auntie. The way how it's done, because the auntie's got so much humor, and she's the type no man can resist his food. Oh, he doesn't like it. Well, give him these hot peppers, that'll teach him less. But auntie's almost like the voice of God. So whenever she needs advice or needs someone to bounce ideas off of, she's always kind of looking out the window, and her head's always facing up. You know that she's talking to the woman upstairs, but it comes across as like that that soothing voice from above that is coming to help her through this rough patch. And for Illa, it does get rougher as she starts to understand things about the distance between her and her husband, the choices that she's going to have to make and things going on with the family. But Auntie's always there when she needs it. And I loved those moments in the film. And it just shows how freaking ingenious the presentation of Auntie is, because we never see her. But you get so many tidbits about her personality, thanks to the vocal performance, first of all, by um, Baharati Atrakar. The little physical details, like when you mentioned the peppers. I loved that she was taunting Illa to use those peppers by lowering them down and then dangling it, like you would dangle a carrot on a stick only in this case it's a devastating array of peppers hearing the banging upstairs as auntie is going about her own business i like the way that you put it as auntie being the voice of god the voice reverberates around the room if you told me that auntie was a next door neighbor instead of an upstairs neighbor i would believe that or if, even if auntie was a downstairs neighbor as opposed to an upstairs neighbor just because the way that the set is designed in that area and the way the sound echoes throughout the tiny apartment making her such a boisterous always present but never seen person with all these lovely little physical touches that express her personality even if she's not there and she's always giving sound advice for, for the most part like Sejan at one point when he starts conversing with Ila and she references that her and her husband are having some issues his advice is maybe you two should have another child because children always help save a marriage it's like no no that's horrible advice you know <laughs> talk, talk to auntie auntie will give you good advice don't go to him don't go to him so I, I really love those moments with her and even when they have that sequence with the peppers and he eats it and you could tell that in his letter that he's realized the error of his ways and he had to eat two bananas just to cool the sensation. And even that funny moment gets turned into a meditative piece when he starts talking about how some people, all they do is eat bananas all day because they're cheap. There's so many layers 
to this film, even though the film is dressed up as a traditional rom-com. Well, I love in the scene with Sajan talking about how everyone eats bananas for lunch, like you said, because they're cheap. There's so many little moments that we get the spirit of Mumbai, the city itself as a personality, even though the lunchbox is confined scope-wise a very tiny place like it primarily takes place in either the office or in Illa's apartment that opening shot of the lunch making its way from Illa's apartment to Sajan's desk it ends up being kind of like a mission statement it's getting us familiar with the bustling activity of this city and then much like the way auntie her presence reverberates throughout Illa's apartment that the spirit of Mumbai the delivery service and the pride at work and the people kind of coming and going and the musings that can come into folks' heads when you feel like you're alone in a sea of crowd. It's like saying this story may be limited, but we're going to infuse it with the spirit of this place. This is the connection that they have. It's thanks to Mumbai with their one mistake out of however many thousands of orders go through. It gets to a point for Sejan and even Illa where they both consider leaving for various reasons and for Sejan he's partly doing it because he visions a possible better life with her but then you also kind of see him looking at Mumbai now and realizing that this isn't the place he grew up and found love in. His old home is now a series of high-end box stores and the way how he looks at his city, the hustle and bustle he, he can no longer take. On the train it used to be fine, he would go do his work. Now he realizes all the young guys keep getting up off their seat to offer to him because he's an old man now. He doesn't want to be the old man in this version of Mumbai. I do agree that the city is very much the fourth character in this film. It makes what could be a lonely or dour experience feel that much more comforting. It's a stark contrast to The Visitor, which also had a will-they-won't-they sort of romance that doesn't exactly blossom and is derailed because of circumstances. But The City and The Visitor is more of a foreign entity, and it's something that has to be coaxed into a healthy space. It's not something that the professor that Richard Jenkins plays is interested in engaging with. And I like that even though so much is off screen, the love that they have for their city comes out with their love of each other. It's almost devastatingly romantic in that way that I think this may be a better romance than Lost in Translation, to be honest. Oh, the bold statement. Well, I mean, Lost in Translation, I love it for many reasons. I think that there are some issues that have come to like with the, the representation and such, but this is filled with such hopeful warmth. And mm. the fact that it doesn't have that alienation that we get with The Visitor or Lost in Translation, which does contribute to both of those movies being excellent. They're great movies, and I think this is easily their equal, where those movies traffic in isolation with fleeting connection. This is a sustained connection that grows along with the taste of the food and along with the words on the page as they form this intimate bond without knowing each other. And that's kind of why I brought up Sleepless in Seattle at the beginning. I, I don't think that Sleepless in Seattle is as good as this. 
Um, but it's such a romantic idea. There is definitely a warmth to this film that the outsider love story that translation and, as you said, the visitor have are greatly missing. I don't know if I enjoyed this more than Lost in Translation, but again, I've only seen this once, whereas I've seen Lost in Translation several times. But the warmth and the romance hit me a lot quicker in this film. I don't think about this too often, but there isn't a, a score here, really. It's a lot of diegetic noises, background noises. It speaks to Ritesh Batra's confidence in the material, that he just lets the city organically fill out these empty spaces with the bustling from Auntie, with the sound of Sajan's commute going to and fro, and the only music coming from devices that they choose to occupy themselves with. I'm grateful for that silence because it's not silence. It's the spirit of the city willing the both of them to some kind of positive revolution. I love it. It's rare that I think silence is comforting. Here, with those noises of the city filling where we would usually have maybe a bombastic score or some kind of pop song, life is going on. It's not stopping for these two. You know, time isn't stopping, but the spirit, their hope, it's lifting them up in those silent spaces. Yeah, and when you were talking, it reminded me of the scene where they were both having a conversation about ceiling fans, and I think it's Auntie's husband, I believe, was in a coma, came out only does a stare at the ceiling fan, and then you start looking at the ceiling fan differently in terms of the ceiling fan, which is just there to keep you cool, is now the sustainer of life. And there's a great moment where he envisions it stopping and life ending, and then it slowly revs back up again. Like, it's just a beautiful scene, and it's juxtaposed with her also looking at the ceiling fan. And it's just really well done in terms of, like, how they incorporate those noises and visuals of the city. Even the little annoyances. Hearing me talk about it, I kind of sound like it's some maybe magical wonderland that's filling in the silences with happy chirps and stuff. But I also love that it is stuff that is inconvenient, like the fan stopping. Or uh, there's this one shot where Sajan is eating the food and Illa is reading the letter. Sajan, as he's swiping at a fly, it cuts to Illa swiping at a fly. The joys and the setbacks are present, and it's that little bit that their annoyances keep them connected as well. Kind of going back to how it's great that their relationship starts because Illa is a bit spiteful of Sajan's response to the lunch that she cooked. And it's not fantastical. I think that's one of the, the other reasons that this resonates with me more on the scale of something like The Apartment than Lost in Translation, because it is essentially a working class story. He has a corporate job, yeah, but I work claims for almost five years and that is some monotonous labor at times working out payments and getting them sent out making sure that everything is set and Illa's life is similarly monotonous it's why she craves any kind of feedback from her husband keeping that daily struggle it's unlikely two people would fall in love over food without seeing each other in letters like that but it's not impossible and the fact that it's so grounded in the city in the this relationship in something as simple as food makes it that much more plausible despite the romance. 
when it first started, I was like, it's unlikely that people would fall in love over food and letters. But then it's like, we live in an age of technology where people are meeting and conversing and falling for each other online well before they meet you. So it's really not that far fetched of a film, if you really think about it. Like, if, if it was emails, for example, obviously you'd miss the whole lunchbox aspect. Then we would go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's plausible because that's the age that we live in. Even through the letters and considering how technology is now, I'm like, no, I could see that as being a plausible way. Like, I could believe that could happen in, in that situation, especially when you have a system like that where you're constantly getting the lunch, i.e. the mail, every day at a, a specific time that you start to look forward to and skip your work or take an early lunch break just so that you can read the letter and write your own, you know, so I could see it being plausible. Yeah, and I guess if we really felt like going out there, you know, you said emails, Nora Ephron also was responsible for You Got Mail. Maybe, maybe a bone. No, I have no interest. In uh, not, not, as, not as strong. Not as strong as uh, Sleepless in Seattle and not as strong as this film. This was an uplifting surprise that I needed recently. I'm surprised that you went in on a blind watch. I've done that a couple of times. This has definitely Over the turned out better than show. the bling ring. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> I, I still have issues with the bling ring. I think every once in a while, and especially because, you know, we, we focus so much on embracing diversity, both in front of and behind the camera, and trying things that you wouldn't normally see. And this is one of those cases where it's like, you know, practice a little bit of what we preach and dive in. Like, There's a couple of films that are stuck in my Netflix queue forever. And it's just been like, no, let me dive in, opposed to choosing the same old, same old that I would I'd go for. Well, and I encourage our listeners to do the same. I was able to watch The Lunchbox on uh, by renting it on Amazon. Considering what happened with The Lunchbox and how it was blocked for Academy consideration, reading into this controversy, it almost also seems like The Lunchbox was spite-blocked by the governing body in India for this, which is sad, but it also feels kind of appropriate. It's still available on Netflix Canada, so for our Canadian listeners... Hop on Netflix and enjoy the, was it, hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes? It's, it's well worth it. It's brisk, very brisk. So l- lovely choice, Courtney. This is setting a very high bar to clear for future romantic movies. So that'll wrap us up for today. Uh, Courtney, how can folks reach you? They could reach me at our Twitter account, which is at ChangingReelsAC, or they can reach me directly on Twitter at SmallMind. And you can reach me at CanStopDrew on Twitter. You can also hit us up on our email, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, Can't Stop the Movies, or of course Courtney's website, Cinema Access. Thanks for listening, folks, and remember, you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.